I'm in love with the process of it. Like it's not about the end result. It's like, I just love trying to get better and trying to get to that place where I feel like, hey, you know, that one was pretty good. Like, you know, and then seeing if I can kind of maintain that or something, you know what I mean? And in all different types of scenarios and situations. I mean, I think that's the, the ongoing challenge, which I love. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Rome from Home. Myself, Chris Gerard, founder of Rome, and co-host Corey Richards, alpinist, National Geographic photographer, and the king of the conversation. Today, we interview Jody McDonald. Incredible conversation that weaves through her life experience, both recent and early formative years, living abroad, traveling, uh, really diving into adventure, why she chose this path, how she identifies the path that she wants to take, finding her joy, um, loss. What else did we talk about, Corey? I mean, we talked about a lot. Well, we covered a lot of ground, um, specifically creativity, health, uh, overcoming you know, discomfort and, and like you said, loss and grief. But the thing that I love about this conversation, the thing I love about Jody is, her, uh, her approach to things is just brass tacks. It's very pragmatic. There's no bullshit. And even when I try to dive down a deep rabbit hole, she has a way of really just uh, answering honestly and authentically. And I, I think that is uh, one of her you know, greatest attributes and it comes through in her work as well. And so this conversation really explores um, the way she views the world and and I take a lot from it um, There's a lot of information and a lot of really great insight that she brings up Meditation or meditation practice. It's a common thing that we're talking about these days But she really dives into how that has helped her is helping her now what she's doing now as someone who travels basically for a living how she's using this moment um, how she's how she's used other significant moments in her life um, that that would be definitely qualified as difficult or or lost. Um, so Joni McDonald, uh, just an incredible visual artist, tons of accolades as a photographer. Uh, twenty-five. She was written about as a, one of the top twenty-five most adventurous women. Uh, she was Adventurer of the Year. Um, she some of the stuff that she's done. I mean, you can Google all that. Um, but just really a pleasure to have her on today. And uh, we hope you enjoy the conversation. Jody, welcome. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great, actually. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you on. Yeah, we're happy to have you. I Did you, I, I heard a rumor, Jody, that you actually had COVID. Uh, you went through it and were confirmed and did the whole thing. I did. I, I think that is like, um, you know, we don't want to make the whole conversation about that, but like, it just that's pretty relevant right now. What was that? What was that like? Um, well, I mean, in the big scheme of things, it wasn't, I mean, that bad at all. And in the big scheme of things of the other diseases that I've contracted over the years, <laughs> it wasn't that bad at all. So, yeah, you have a list, Jody. I mean, you've, you're such a, a, I mean, you've been to like over 90 countries, you've lived abroad in your youth. Like what, what is the, I, I read the list, but tell us it, it's, it's a, I don't know if you call that impressive or just like, it's like, whoa. Like you were just unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think it's, I think it's like a byproduct of so much travel, to be honest with you. Um, God, I've had malaria, typhoid fever, a lot of unknown stuff that like I got hospitalized in Madagascar for some intestinal infection. I never found out what it was. No idea. I had a staph infection living on the boat on, on that like stayed with me for like four years uh, tumor <laughs> recently. Um, I don't know. You, I, I mean, E. coli, Giardia, I mean, you name it. Like, I feel like, I feel like I've kind of had a lot of it. <laughs> Occupational hazard. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so is this just like, kind of like a minor cold in comparison or well, what, what, my how, version how did it manifest? Of, my version of COVID was, yeah, I think, you know, very minor. I mean, I've had, I've had the flu in the past way worse. Yeah. Um, than, than I had, um, 
my, my COVID was. I think the strangest thing about the co my, having COVID was that, you know, you, you have a lot of this, well, I had a lot of the symptoms of having a cold. So like, you know, fever, cough, and like fatigue. And then I think you expect it to just kind of like get worse and then have it for like a few days, like you would a cold and then it gets better. But it doesn't, it's kind of like this weird, it was really weird how you'd, I'd feel really bad and then I'd feel better and then I'd almost feel normal and then I'd get another wave of it again. And that happened maybe four or five times. Huh. And so that was, that was really strange because you, it kind of just felt like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm on the mend, I'm, I'm getting better. And then I'd get like really sick again. And it was just huh. like, wow, this thing's really like a different, like a different beast, you know, it's just kind of, yeah, unexpected. So you, um, you just like in naming the, all the diseases and illnesses you've had, <laughs> which is a great way to start. Um, you mentioned a couple things and, uh, namely the boat. Um, I want to, I kind of want to ask you about your history. Obviously you lived abroad. You were kind of brought up abroad. Like, just tell us, tell us your story, uh, in, you don't don't have to make it too abridged. I mean, we got time. I'm just really curious, and I think people will be really curious to know where you've come from because it really is a fascinating backstory. Well, I'm Canadian originally, and I moved to Saudi Arabia when I was two. My dad worked for a Canadian telephone company, and they and the company got a contract to like set up the telephone system in Saudi Arabia. And so uh, we moved there when I was two, and I didn't leave till I was 16. Okay. Um, and then one of the perks that my, you get a lot of perks when you take a job in the Middle East. Um, and one of the perks my dad got was like, we got paid vacations. And my parents had never been anywhere. They'd never traveled anywhere abroad or even that much in Canada. So they were like, wow, we're gonna take full advantage of this. So every school break or holiday, um, we, my parents, took us to some country they had never been to. So I got to see a large part of the world uh, during my, you know, my formative years as a, you know, as a kid. And that really made a huge impression on me. Um, I just really, I got, I, got, I got overwhelmed by just how amazing the world was and how much there was to see and experience. And I mean, I tell people it kind of, it made me dream about being Indiana Jones, like having these adventures in <laughs> far off lands, you know? And I, um, I think, you know, that's where my love of adventure and kind of places more off the beaten path um, because Saudi was always felt very off the beaten path. Um, how much those, I'm drawn to those places as an adult. Um, and then, so when I, when I finished, uh, when I came back to Canada, I finished high school, um, went to university and, and I didn't really know at all what I wanted to take in school. And I didn't want to waste an education on something like that I didn't want, that I wasn't interested in. Cause I saw so many like, other kids doing that. Like they were forced to take a major and they didn't know what they wanted to do. So I ended up getting a major in outdoor recreation, which, everybody made fun of me for because it wasn't like a real major but it was like the closest thing to something like I was really interested in and passionate about so I'll, I'll still make fun of you for that yeah, yeah. but that's yeah that's neither yeah. here nor there yeah um and then I was always in in school I was always into um phys ed sports and art and then uh in university I took a photography elective class and for me I'm a perfectionist so um like painting and doing that stuff I loved it but it was took me forever to finish something because I was never satisfied with it. And when I started doing photography, it was kind of like lightning striking for me because I was like, wow, I, I, like I get immediate results. Well, other than like going into, you know, develop the film in the dark room and everything, but you know, relatively immediate. And I, I loved that as the media, as a medium, like it didn't, it didn't take me like three months to finish something, you know? And then I thought, wow, I can actually take a camera with me on my adventures. Um, and so that's kind of how my photography 
um, really kind of stood the bug started and I had kind of been going since then. Where did the, where did the perfectionism come from? Why are you a perfectionist? You know, I have no idea. I mean, I, mean, is I you know, your, I don't know. My, my parents aren't necessarily perfectionists. Uh, maybe my brother is a little bit, a little bit, kind of not. I don't know. I ha honestly, I have no idea. I mean, was it a, I'm just curious because I, you know, I'm a perfectionist and I, I know where it comes from in me, but I'm curious always when I hear people say I'm a perfectionist, I, 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 you know, tracing that back, I think is, has been valuable for me. And I'm just, you know, I mean, was it a family thing where, um, where, where what maybe can, it's fostered just, by competition or what, what is, uh, the, in, in both your cases as self-defined perfectionists, is that, is that the making of the bed? Is that order? Is it no. aesthetic? Um, because it, people say that, you know, and then also there's the whole thing and that there is no perfection, right? So what, what Corey, you and I've talked about a little bit, but why do you say you're a perfectionist? First of all, me? <laughs> Jody, Jody first, and then I want to hear from well, you. Well, it's it's definitely not an order thing for me. It's definitely an aesthetic. I'm I'm so much okay. a visual person, and then I I love details. Um, details are really important to me, and it's not about order. It's just about how uh, details, like even in my space, like my home space, it needs to have a certain feel to it. And for me, it's all about the details. And I think that applies to like art and photography and so many different things in our lives. Hmm. And so I place a ton of value on that. And I think then that would lead more into perfectionism because I'm trying to get to that point where it evokes that feeling in me that I, I like, like basically great juju. <laughs> right, right, right. It's, it's I mean, that's one of the things I love about Bali. I don't know if you've ever been to Bali, but the, the aesthetic of that place has amazing juju. Like it's super sexy and like it's, it's so many things there that, and, I, and I'm really drawn to that. Mm -hmm. So it's not even really perfect. I mean, it's not perfection in it. What is perfection? And it's for you, it's about things being in a, in a certain order or design that makes you feel right. Yeah. Like your emotional state is comfort. I mean, I, I understand that from like, if it's your space, if something, some details out of place, you actually feel, you feel it. It's not a, uh, it's well, not a, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I think it goes state. back to the bed. Like my bed doesn't need to be made perfectly, even though I'm a perfectionist, it just needs to be done like to a certain state where it, it evokes that feeling in me like, Oh, like I'm a, per, I'm a relic, I'm a relatively productive person. I made my bed. Right. <laughs> and so for both of you is, as far as, as acclaimed photographers, this is something I see, this is a, is a commonality I see with successful photographers and visual artists is that they all say they're not all, but I'm a perfectionist, but the definition of that is really about what their emotional feeling is because your perfection is different than Corey's. Right. Um, but it's that it is an aesthetic thing. I don't know, Corey, you, you describe it for your, for yourself. Like when you say you're a perfectionist, the, we were talking about our spaces to a degree, but let's take that to, to your, to your work, because obviously it translates into when you see a photo. Um, and I have a follow-up on that, on what makes a great photo. So maybe Corey with the perfectionist thing, and then, then let's talk about how that relates to photography. Well, I'm gonna, I, I mean, I, my, my definition of perfectionism is much more clinical. Um, and <clears throat> what I mean by perfectionism in, in my case is that um, I have a, almost a pathology around needing things to meet a certain standard otherwise I a don't do them, uh, or b I have to get them. I have to not have them present, and that so so that can be that can manifest in like yes, this thing is out of place. 
Um, it manifests in a sort of a, a, an almost a paralysis around creative projects when I don't feel as though I can create that which is in my head already. Mm. Um, that sort of demand for perfectionism it becomes prohibitive. Uh, the, the people always say, you know, um, perfect is the enemy of good. Uh, meaning that like in order to get to something good, you have to start period. And if you're aiming for perfection or you're holding yourself to that standard, oftentimes you won't even start a project. And I find myself doing that all the time. Um, but I think for me, that's tied more to a deep sense of, and this is where I, 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 I do, th- you know, I've gleaned a lot of information from this. This comes from my own core beliefs around my own personal value. And for better or worse, you know, I have a deficit in my belief that I, you know, matter. And that's built from sort of a precognitive level. And so that's where my perfectionism comes from, is if I can create perfect things, beautiful things that garner validation from external sources that fills up in some ways the value deficit that I have. It's fleeting and it doesn't last, but that's where my drive for perfectionism has come from. Now it's grown into different things, but that is, that it, that's its source. So that's why I ask like, where does your perfectionism come from? Not that it's the same. I'm just always curious. No, that's really interesting. I think it, it yeah. because it's, it's actually, that's what I was getting is that you guys are both saying you're perfectionist as many photographers um, who, who are successful with it say, but there's a different, a, really there's a different driver for, for both of you is in terms of what perfection is. And I mean, when it comes to your work, you know, Jody, I've heard you say in, in other interviews, like there might be a half dozen photos in your career that even though you've pu- published like, maybe hundreds, I, you know, you've been paid for a lot in any case, that there's a half dozen photos that you feel like meet the standard of where you feel like that's, that's a great photo. And I think that comes back to the perfectionism thing. Like, and I don't know what the answer is for you, Corey, again, most of the successful photographers I talk to sort of have that self-criticism in that, you know, there's only like a handful of photos that they've taken that they're like, actually, this is, this is great. So I, I'm curious about that perspective on your own your own view of your own work as it relates to this being a perfectionist. Well, but Jody, I mean, do you really believe that you only have half a dozen photos that meet your standard? No, because it's I, not about meeting my standard. Even it's about again, like I that I feel good about it. Like I don't think I'm I'm ever gonna say about my own photography or in this particular image, like this is an amazing image. Like, I just don't, I don't, I don't like thinking that way. And I think I'm just too critical, but I I feel like my being the way I'm critical of my work is, I feel like it serves me. Like it's, it's me. I'm in love with the process of it. Like, it's not about the end result. It's like, I just love the process of trying to get better and trying to get to that place where I feel like, Hey, you know, you didn't, you did pretty good. Like that one was pretty good. Like, you know, and then try to like, keep, um, like seeing if I can kind of maintain that or something, you know what I mean? And in all different types of scenarios and situations. I mean, I think that's the, the ongoing challenge, which I love. Mm. I mean, how do you, how do you pick or, and I know this is a weird question because I, I I know my own experience with it, but how do you choose to pursue um, a specific photo story? Like, I mean, you've done some amazing things, train hopping across the Sahara. Like that's what I, I, I would love to do that. That's just amazing to me. Um, you've sailed around the world twice. Uh, like, how do you, how do you know where your creative compass is pointing like what is your magnetic north in creativity and how do you follow that i always tell people this like pay attention i'm trying i always try to do it is pay attention to inside like what excites me so when i think of 
when I think of something or see something um, and I notice I get like really excited about the thought of it or seeing it or something, I try to stop and catch myself in that moment and then analyze what it is about it that interests or excites me. And I think it's kind of that simple thing that helps me kind of steer things into what I want to do and what I don't want to do. Like if somebody said to me, do you want to train hop across the Sahara? I'd be like, hell yeah, I'm in. Let's go tomorrow. Like that's, that's how excited I would get about it. So that's how I know. I feel like that's what I have to be pursuing, you know? And then there's other things that have like that, you know, that come up and I'm just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I just don't like, I don't feel it. You know, and again, it comes back to a feeling thing, but there's a really great, uh, one of my favorite commencement speeches. I don't know if you've ever heard it from Neil Gaiman. He's a, he's an author and he talks about, you know, one of the things that helped him as a writer was that knowing what your mountain is, like what your ultimate, like what is like the perfect scenario in your mind of what you, you know, you want the types of jobs you want to be working on or stories or whatever, like what does that mountain look like? And then every time you're proposed an opportunity, is it taking you towards that mountain or away from the mountain? And I always find that so helpful. Um, and like, as soon as you put a decision in that context, it often the answer comes to you immediately. Like, the gut instinct kicks in and you're like, nope, that's not, that's not taking me towards my mountain. That's taking me away from it. So I got to not do it. And I, I find that really helpful. Um, but yeah, I think, I think a big part of it for me is trying to really pay attention to what excites me and what I want to be doing. Like I've always been driven by experiences and very little about money. And so for me, because that's where all the wealth is, is in the experiences. And yeah, so I think, I think those are just kind of like basic things that I do that help guide me or try to, because it's an ongoing process, right? What are you working on right now that you're really excited about? Or are you? Or are you in between something? I'm, uh, well, since I got, well, I had the tumor, I really wanted to start uh, checking things off my bucket list. Um, <laughs> so do you have like a bucket list? Did you make I, a bucket list? I mean, I have a bucket list in my head, okay. um, <laughs> but I don't actually like have a <laughs> note on the wall that says bucket list. Um, but one of them it's been for a long time is uh, motorcycling the Tibetan plateau. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And, and kind of seeing where that takes me. I don't, want to, I don't want to create too much structure behind it. I'd love to go into Pakistan and Iran as well. Can, can I come? <laughs> sure. I want to come. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Up every, every single one of these episodes, he jumps on board on whatever adventure. So yeah. you're going to Greenland, you're going to the Tibetan Plateau now. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, these, these trips, like if people were serious, you know, it's so funny. I, when I ask, can I come? I'm, I'm generally very serious. Like I would go, you know, yeah. but I think a lot of people say yes. Cause it's, you know, it's funny, but, but in reality, they're but you like, want to well, be maybe. on the back of the motorcycle. I, I, I want to do it on a scooter. So let's just be clear. <laughs> side the sidecar. Yeah. I want to be on the sidecar. Well, I mean, um, I would love for people to come and do sections with me, you know, like different people to come do sections. I think it would be I think it'd be fantastic. What's the distance, Jody, on that? that I don't, I don't, I don't want to have a start and end point. Right. Perfect. Yeah. What, um, you've mentioned it twice and I, I know what you're talking about. Chris knows what you're talking about, but, um, you've mentioned this tumor twice and I think there's a lot of information and, um, useful sort of, well, yeah, there's some useful information that could come out of people knowing what you're what what you're referencing. Yeah, so last fall, I well, I, I would say last summer, I started to have some abdominal issues, and I went in, and they they told me I had some ovarian cysts, and um, I, it's very common in women to have ovarian cysts. Most women have them and don't even know they have them, and what they they. They, like a cyst that fills with liquid and it grows bigger and then it 
just kind of breaks on their own and, and goes away. So they just told me, oh, you have some, you know, large ovarian cysts, but, you know, just wait a couple months and they'll just dissipate on their own. That's what I thought was going on. And that probably was, you know, no doubt I had ovarian cysts. But then after months got by, it, it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And then finally, I, I went into the doctor and I said, I don't, you know, if it's the cysts, then I've got like some, something going wrong with them or something happening with them. And then, uh, so they did another ultrasound in my abdomen and they found, they ended up finding, um, yeah, a five inch tumor. And like overnight, I, well, like I walked into the doctor's office thinking I had a variant cyst complication and walked out 30 minutes later thinking I had one to four years to live because that's what, that's what they told me. Those are the stats on, you know, a tumor that big on your ovary. So life, yeah. I mean, uh, you can imagine life changed incredibly fast. Um, I mean, mentally, just like, wow. I mean, it's just so... It's just so hard to take in and comprehend. And, and then I ended up getting, uh, very quickly, I ha had to get it removed, got it removed. They said they didn't know uh, until they took it out whether it was going to be benign or malignant. And then they would know in the middle of the operation, because they do the pathology on it, in the middle of the operation, they said, oh, it'll be like one minute. Within a minute, we'll know whether it's benign or malignant. So going into the surgery was, was pretty crazy, because if you, if it's, if it's malignant, then they were going to have to remove a whole bunch of stuff to, you know, kind of increase my chances of survival. And if it was benign, then, you know, they could just take out the tumor and I would be fine. Um, they were pretty sure it wouldn't be benign because it's usually not benign. And then, so I went in to the operate, like the op operating room, not having any idea how I would wake up, you know. Um, and then I, I, I woke up and they were like, I said, well, is it benign or malignant? And they were like, we have no idea. And I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, no, we had to send it off to Harvard and get more testing on it. And they're like, well, we, you know, we won't know for another two weeks. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you might actually have to go back in and like reopen and take more things out if it, if it happens to be malignant and they're like yeah and um and then so yeah just kind of I mean it's just that unknown is so so difficult and then I you know I get a phone call like 12 days later and the doctor's like it's benign you're good to go you're fine I was like wow that's crazy yeah so I mean that's like one day you go in and you're you're essentially told well you're you're probably going to die in one to four years. Yeah. What is that? What did you do? I mean, what were your, what were your immediate actions after that? I think like I, I remember walking out to my car and sitting in my car and just like I was shaking because I had actually in the middle of the doctor's office when she told me I had to go to the, like I had to run to the bathroom to throw up because I just like, it was such an instant shock. Because I, I wasn't expecting anything that bad to begin with, you know? And so the, the shock was kind of overwhelming. And then, so when I, I sat in my car and I remember just shaking and, and crying and not really knowing what to do. Like, what, you know, what do you do next? You know, like, it's like, how do you, like just trying to wrap my head around it. And then um, I, I remember I just came home and I like sat, I think on the, I don't know, on the couch for quite a while, like a couple hours, just like thinking about it. And then I remember I called my sister and I told her and, um, and then my sister's a very like proactive person. So she's like, okay, this is what you're going to do next. And, and that's kind of what I needed. I needed somebody to like put me into action, into forward action, whatever it was. You know, and so she's like, okay, well, you're going to call, like, my niece is a doctor. So it's like, you're going to call your doctor, you know, you're going to call Ellen, my niece, and then talk to her. And do you know what I mean? Like, start the steps of kind of figuring out what to do next. And then, you know, so, I mean, then, and then within 
like 10 hours, I was already seeing the surgeon and everything's moved pretty quickly after that. Have you experienced that same kind of fear or that same kind of shock when you've been working ever? Not working, paragliding, yes. Where, where mortality was. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right where, yeah. Where you're right on the edge of mortality. Yeah. Uh, paragliding for sure. I wouldn't say, you know, nothing, uh, working has happened to me bad enough for me to feel that way. And then I, I had, um, I, I, I talk about this in just some other interviews, but my, I had a boyfriend who was a paraglider who died in a paragliding accident and, and going through, his death too. This tumor reminded me a lot of the process. I like it the way I felt processing his death, his sudden death. How, how did you process that? I mean, in hindsight now, how many years ago was it? Oh man, it was, uh, I don't know. It's more like 13 years ago now. I mean, how did that, how did that manifest? How did it change you and and the way you approach I mean it, cha- it changed me profoundly I mean I I I tell people this I mean I think in many ways it was one of the greatest gifts I've ever received um and I, I don't mean that I mean it was also one of the hardest things I've ever been through but I mean there's definitely a direct correlation with going through really hard things and and having them be great gifts. And this was, and for me, going through his death was one of them. And I mean, I think it, it, it profoundly made me really analyze what was important to me and how, like I wanted to live every day, make choices every day that made me happy. You know, that was, you know, it's just like if I could wake up every morning and just make my choices that make me happy, then you know what? I just might live a happy life. Like I might, you know, and so it was just like, you never know when, when we could die. So let's just, you know, make the most of it. And I, I and I know we hear that all the time, but it, it's, it was, it was feeling it on a very visceral, profound level that for me was an incredible gift. And I think most people, don't understand that truly unless they go through a death, a near death experience or something like that, which kind of makes them, you know, just fundamentally challenge and think about how they're living their lives on a day to day basis Mm -hmm. and who they're spending their time with and, you know, all those things. Is there a, is there a corollary there between this pandemic that we're going through and, and what people are experiencing, certainly in terms of loss, do you think? I mean, is that lesson transferable? I mean, I think it's, I think it's always transferable. I mean, I, 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 in, my, in my experience, and I suspect a lot in yours because you've in, endured a lot of hardship as well, um, it's just that I've learned that the hardest things, the most difficult and challenging things that have happened to me in my life are usually they end up being like the, I get the biggest reward from them. And so I don't, I mean, I, and, I, and I subscribe a lot to stoicism, which is a lot about enduring, you know, uh, the importance of enduring hardship and the way to perceive hardship and the benefits and in like how you, how to manage hardship. And so I just think you get so, I, I, I just think you do end up getting a lot of benefit from circumstances that can be challenging or perceived as challenging. Yeah. And it's, and it's how we choose to perceive them. Like we, I think we have the choice, you know, to perceive them in different ways. I mean, I, I think I think going through a death can either like destroy a person, or or help you have a better life, depending on how you perceive it. How do you make that choice? Because I know a lot of people that death becomes in in our community. Um, 
and I need to choose my words very carefully here because I don't want to criticize anybody who has gone through loss. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think that's the hard thing. I'm only only speaking from my experience with it. But, but I do know that people tend to create even identities around the experience of loss. They can create a mythology um, of, about uh, the life that, you know, the person who has passed and the life that they lived with that person um, that isn't actually honest, but it's useful in, in getting over the pain that is acutely uh, affecting their lives. So they create a mythology, much as we do when we break up with somebody where all of a sudden that person is a narcissist, they're the worst, they're, which that's, that's a mythology that helps us to overcome uh, that sense of loss. When, when somebody dies in general, it becomes almost, they become in some ways a demigod. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and so I'm curious your process with avoiding the pitfalls of mythologizing loss. I mean, how have you, because you are very well-rounded and it seems that you've taken um, the information and assimilated it into a way that is informative and helpful for you, but isn't, uh, but doesn't trap you. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think it's a lot of things and I agree with you. I think that was one of the really hard things I had, I, I, that I struggled with going through. One of the most frustrating things for me when Chris died was that everybody did talk about him as, as if he was superhuman. Um, and I, I actually got really frustrated with it because I think it made it harder for people to grieve when they think that the superhuman person is gone. I mean, it's just like, wait a second, let's have a reality check here. I mean, he was a great person. He had so many positive things, but he was also human you know he also had these other sides to him and so i didn't it really bothered me that people were lifting him up on this pedestal i was just i remember going through the grieving process and thinking you know like what did what did my time with chris like what did what lessons did i i learn from him like what gifts did he give me what did my my time with him how did it add value to my life and then I thought about those things and then and then I think and then I just felt incredibly fortunate to have spent any time with him at all you know I just I um and, and so then I thought like that was a gift in itself that I was just able to spend any time with him and so and then I took what what I thought like the amazing things I got out of that relationship and tried to use those moving forward in my life um and then when the, I think when I started thinking that way, then so many aspects of his death were a gift. Are you aware of the moment that you have a shift in perspective? And how does that, how does that present itself to you? Well, it's really interesting that you say that because one thing, a tool that's helped me massively with identifying it is meditation. Mm -hmm. um, what is what does your practice look like? Uh, I mean, I try to do it uh, every morning for at least 20 minutes. Um, but I think when I started meditating, so Jerry Moffat, you might know Jerry Moffat. Yeah. He's a good yeah. friend of mine. And he, he kind of convinced me to start meditating. I don't know, like I don't know, eight or nine years ago. And I, when I did it, I did, I started with the, this thing called winter feast for the soul, which was like 40 days of meditating every day and building upon that meditation. And then I remember, I think it was during that process where I was really just kind of blown away with the results of it. And one of the things it just helped me so much with was having ideas pass through my brain and having learning to have no judgment on them and then it's like these are not good or not bad they just are and then i started applying that and, and you know like they, they say when you're you know you're meditating you have a thought and you kind of try to stop the chatter and stop and 
like catch it almost and think about, oh, that's what I'm thinking about. And then kind of, kind of like remove it from yourself and take a look at it and analyze it. And I found, I started applying that kind of mythology to, or that, that to everything in my life. So if I were, you know, outside driving and I got really frustrated, I stopped, I would, I, like it taught me how to like kind of stop my thoughts in that moment and kind of look like what, you know, is this, this is not good or bad. There's, there shouldn't be any judgment to it. Why do I have negative judgment to this? And then just so, trying to think about that. And so I find, I find that's been massively helpful in kind of taking these situations that I don't have control of or control of and, and kind of looking at them, separating them from myself almost and looking at them from an outside perspective. And I find that massively helpful. What, what stories, you know, it's, I mean, the way I hear that is negative, positive, th those are generally attached to stories. We're telling ourselves a story about a certain situation and it happens pretty instantaneously. We also do that with ourselves. And I'm curious, um, people who like you, who are very actualized and action-based tend to live uh, with fewer stories about themselves. And I'm curious if you can identify any stories that you used to tell yourself about yourself that you, after Chris's passing and, and specifically that experience that you no longer found useful and found freedom from. Stories about myself in what, like what way? Well, you know, like I, maybe that's too complex of a question, but I What's mean like- change, right? I think you're, you're, I mean, fundamentally like what the change that loss made you realize on some level, like there was before and there was after. And either way I'm hearing what you're saying, Corey, is that there's a story before and then you go through that and there's a change in terms of how you, what your outlook is. Yeah. And, and did, were there any other, you know, through that experience of loss, were there any other sheddings, so to speak, that, that you went through? Things that were no longer, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're lent this perspective through this experience and all of a sudden you're like, you know what? This thing that I may have believed for so long actually isn't serving me. And now I'm, I'm going to choose to move beyond that. Yeah, I... You know, I again, maybe I'm complicating. No, 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 not not at all. I mean, I, I get what you're you're going after, but I can't I can't think of anything like. I I think it all it did was I mean I've I think because of my the way I grew up uh, traveling a lot and having these and loving adventure and stuff I think it only amplified it more mostly amplified my decisions to have a more fulfilling life for me and have more life experiences and do these things that I like that, that gave me a lot of, that give me a lot of pleasure and value in life. And I think it wasn't necessarily shedding. I think it was more amplifying those fundamental feelings or beliefs that I, I had before taking them to another level. And it, Jody, as a, my understanding of your history there is, you know, you, you basically went to sea. Yeah. And then, and then like not long after his death, yeah, I ended up, I started sailing and I, I had no, I had no intention of how long, I had no idea how long I'd go sailing for. And I mean, within the first month I was like in the worst storm, he, like, I was in a horrible storm for 10 days, you know, didn't eat, was vomiting the whole time. Uh, like worst, worst case scenario. I mean, we planned on sinking the boat. We, we you know, I mean, you know, worst case scenario. So I, I ended up, you know, thinking immediately after that, I, I go home and then I ended up sailing for 10 years. <laughs> um, I'm going to go home. I'll stay for a decade. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, like, I never knew how long I'd keep sailing. I just ended up, you know, continuing on and on and on, but I've, and I've heard you say very publicly that you don't even like sailing. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't actually like sailing. I mean, I, I get, I'm seasick for one, but 
I don't actually throw up. I'm just in this perpetual state of like dizziness and, mm. and, and minor nausea. Um, I don't actually like the act of sailing, but I loved, I loved having the sailboat for a vehicle for exploration. Like just getting access to places that nobody can really get access to and having these amazing adventures in these places was, was, I just, for me was the best thing. I love that. Worth it, worth the discomfort. Yeah. Oh, completely, completely mm. worth the discomfort. I think you can relate to that, Corey. I mean, I like being comfortable. The older I get, <laughs> I like this bed. No, I, I can relate to it. I, I'm curious how your, um, how your art specifically was influenced by, you know, your experience with losing a partner, but then also, you know, putting yourself out into that kind of perpetual discomfort. And do you see that? Do you see that represented in the artwork that you were creating? Not really. No, I mean, not, not really. I mean, I think, I think I was so, I, I didn't focus a lot on the discomfort. I mean, I got annoyed with it because <laughs> it was just always there. And you kind of, you, you know, we're, as humans, we're so good at adapting. Um, so you just deal with it. I just dealt with it. And then, um, but I was just, I was more, my photography definitely was, you know, my, was, you know, focusing on trying to capture these, um, these, you know, incredible experiences and places that, um, that I was visiting because that's what was really inspiring me. The, the, the seasickness was definitely not inspiring me. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. No, I just, I ask that because anytime I'm in a situation where shit really is awful and like people are like getting pummeled, that's when I get, that's when I light up like yeah. in terms of creation, you know, and yeah. taking impactful images, I tend to like gravitate towards when things are absolutely at their, fucking worst yeah but i think like and i i agree with you i'm there now and i i for me in a heartbeat now would would love to focus more on that stuff but i think when i was i think it's a process because i think when i was learning photography uh i wasn't i wasn't good enough yet in my mind to focus on that stuff like i think it comes in stages almost like i think you have to get to a certain level where you're like oh yeah well i mean the pretty picture is easy, you know, but you have to, you have to get to that place before I think, at least for me, that I could turn it around and go, oh, okay, well now this stuff is the better stuff, you know, mm -hmm. like I think, I think it, I had to reach a certain level of, um, yeah, just of skill to get to that place where I could, you know, start looking at those as opportunities and those are real, the real, the good stuff starts, you know? So you're also in a unique position as a woman. I mean, I've been at National Geographic for over 10 years now and just really recently with Susan Goldberg as the chief editor, have we seen this uptick in um, female contribution? And I, you've been there for or you've been working in this field for a long time and in certainly as an outlier in that way. Um, has that, has that helped you being one of the, you know, few women working in the field that you're working in, or do you, do you feel like that's been a hindrance? I mean, I was the answer. I, yes. I, no, I think that's really hard for me to tell. I don't focus on it's funny, like, I don't focus on my gender at all. Mm hmm uh, with my work with anything. And I, I guess I just expect other people not to either. Um, to me, like if my work's good, my work's good. It doesn't matter what gender I am or what race I am or anything like it, that to me, that should be completely irrelevant. And so in my mind, in my world, it is irrelevant. Um, I don't, I don't actually know if it's, I would say helped me or not. I always just do the things that I want to do. If, if, you know, I don't feel like any of that is a hindrance 
Um, yeah, and I don't, I definitely don't take it personally if it is. Like, I just don't, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I haven't, I haven't found either way. Like, I don't, because I just don't put any mental thought into it, to be honest with you. Well, I love that. I, I love that. I think that's the world that, I mean, that's the fucking best answer you could give, which is, I, you know, I haven't even thought about it because it doesn't affect me. I think a lot of other people put a tremendous amount of energy into that gender gap. And that's why I ask because everybody has a different experience with it. I love your answer. I think it's very honest and pure. I just, I also know that, you know, as a woman, sometimes um, you can get access to places that men can't yeah. specifically in the Middle East. Um, but at the same time, men can get access to a lot of other places that, that women can't. So I was just curious if you yeah. would. I mean, that, I mean, that's definitely the case, you know, in the Middle East, but I, I guess I, I guess I'm just really used to that. Like growing up around that, I, I, I don't like, I just, you know, I just kind of adapt to it. It's like, okay, well, if I don't have access to that, what do I have access to? How can I make this work? It's just like problem solving the situation, which is just so much a part of what I love about photography. It's just like, okay, well, that's not going to work. So let's focus on what can, you know, like I don't dwell on what I'm not able to do or what I can't do. It just doesn't, it's like a waste. It's a waste of time. I just, I love that answer too, because it is so true that you can focus on what you're not being able to photograph, but oftentimes that leads you to what you can photograph. Right. And it gives you the access that you, you wouldn't have otherwise had because you're, you're reacting in a way that is proactive versus, well, fuck, I can't do that. So I'm not going to do anything. Right. right. So, I mean, I think that's, I just think that's really, the useful information for young photographers, regardless of gender or regardless of socioeconomic background, regardless of race, religion, wherever they are, um, your, your, whatever you are blocked from can actually help inform that which you can photograph. Right. And so pursue that. Right. Versus continually trying to get access to something that, you know, that, that right there says, you know, that's not, this is not where you're going right now. Right. That's really useful, I think. Right. It's funny, like, well, what, I, what I don't like to see is women trying to use that angle to get work and to get jobs. Like, I don't. I, I always tell this story about when I was in college, I was on the ultimate Frisbee team and I played on a co-ed team. And I, I was like the only girl on the co-ed team. And I, all the time, like, girls would come to our games or practices and be like, you know, why, you know, why aren't you letting more girls on the team? And I just kept saying like, well, no, just come out to practice. Like, can you catch a Frisbee? Can you throw it? Like how many ways can you throw it? Let's see, like playing a game with us. And most of the time they couldn't even catch the Frisbee or even throw it. And I was like, wait a second. You're like, you're expecting to be on the team simply because you're a girl, but you actually can't do any of the things that are required. <laughs> Um, and that like, that really frustrated me. And so I, 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 it does frustrate me even still when I see like women photographers or in, in any kind of job trying to use that to their advantage. I always think, I always think that if you do really good work, it, you will get work. Like if you just do, if you make good art, <laughs> you know, if you just do, if you do good work, then, then the, you know, it, it will find you. You will, you will always have some job in some way, shape or form. For me, it's hard to say that because we are in a moment of, um, yes, we're at a different moment in time. And, right. and so it's important for me to acknowledge privilege that, yeah by virtue of the way I was born, the gender I was born, the race I was born, I have had more doors open. Uh -huh. However, I, and, and, and I, I really do, so that's just period, end of story. I do agree that there is something to be said for focusing on the work. Just do fucking good work. Focus on that. Don't focus on, you know, the, the circumstances by which you came to it. Focus on doing the work. And, and, Again, I say that with a huge amount of acknowledgement of privilege, so I don't want to be misunderstood. But I love what you're saying. I, I really do, because it, it comes back to meritocracy. And 
and, and, um, and, and put in the time. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I can only ever speak from my experience and, and you know, that's, that's the world that I live in. So that's how, that's all I, I know and can speak to, but. So yeah. in this time right now, as we wrap up here, Jody, um, you know, that, I, don't I think want that's to. Really, I don't either, but I, I want, you know, I want to respect our guest time, Corey. Um, but you know, what is the focus? I mean, we, we just talked a lot about focus and creative guardrails, which I, I think is, is essential for anyone who's looking at that line of work. Right now we have a major guardrail um, for someone like yourself who makes a living as an adventurer in addition to a visual artist and that requires travel and um, you know, you spent most of your life traveling. Right now we're all sort of grounded Where's your momentum right now? You know, where, what are you focusing on and choosing to focus on um, during during this time? Um, and yeah, if you could just give us a little insight on that as as a an artist and where where's your energy um, as we go through this? I mean, I'm actually really enjoying this time because I think I think any time that we can kind of be we can slow down and be introspective is really special. I mean, I think it's like within our times because we're always like so busy around so many people all the time that we don't like stop and and be with ourselves and be with our own thoughts and really contemplate a lot of things. And so for me, that's incredibly special. Um, and I, I kind of wish most more people would view it that way, to be honest with you. I think we've gotten to a point where a lot of people don't actually feel comfortable in that space anymore. And so I'm being very introspective, which is great. Um, focusing on my health because um, I had COVID and, and this year was a big year of me being sick. So, you know, exercising a lot. I'm, I'm doing a lot of running and mountain biking. I'm fortunate enough to live in a place uh, where, you know, I'm nature's everywhere. So it, I find that incredibly helpful and and um necessary um and then like gardening and then in terms of <clears throat> like projects i'm i'm just thinking about these big trips that i in projects that like my personal projects that i want to focus on in the future so you know the tibetan plateau um i want to do more train hopping um you know just stuff like focus, like try to work towards like plan those out a little bit, put energy into those, um, and and think about really the work I want to be doing on the flip side of this. Um, so I mean, I think I think that's that's a special time to be able to have the luxury of that to to really kind of contemplate that stuff. Yeah, I was thinking about that as you guys were talking about the the sort of juxtaposition of, of calling loss a gift um, that, you know, and again, we have to acknowledge that it's, it's a hard time, but I think it's possible that we will look back at portions of this and, and say that it was a, a gift um, as far as what, what happened in, in during this time. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, speaking to the environment too, I think it's fantastic for the environment. It finally gets to breathe a little bit. And I mean, there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of downsides, but there's also a ton of upside. So um, again, it's about how we perceive things. I think. I, I like that. That's uh that is a good, a good place to end. Um, I'd love to, I think we'd both love to have you back on in a different um in the future, just to, I want to dive more into your process, your creative process. And, um, I want to dissect some of your photography because I love it. And, uh, and I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about that, but also more, more stories of, um, how you were brought up and your life to this point. But I think, uh, ending it with the idea of, um, a shift in perspective, uh, you know, given, the circumstances and of course being gentle around what people are going through, I think is a really beautiful um, and useful place to end, uh, especially as people 
are seemingly in the United States are, are approaching this critical mass of angst. Um, and, uh, and I, I just really appreciate you, you bringing that to light. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time today. And thanks for, um, continually inspiring me and other people with the work that you do and being such a fucking badass. <laughs> well, thank, thank you so much for having me. I just, yeah, it's too short. We could talk about all this stuff for, for a long time. No, we it's have so lots fun. of other questions. For sure. <laughs> cool. Well, um, thanks so much. I, I hopefully yeah. our conversation wasn't too dark talking about death and tumors, but <laughs> Actually, that's maybe what you can I, name the name the, the, name title. the podcast "Death and Tumors." Yeah. Death and Tumors with Jody McDonald. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jody McDonald. What an incredible conversation! Uh, thanks for joining us on this one. Big takeaways on on this one, Corey. What, what do you think the number one takeaway for for uh, this conversation was? For me, everything that Jody talks about is really a shift in perspective. Uh, and the way that she uses her perspective and can mold her perspective to move through the world and create art and create experiences that are additive um, versus experiences that are negative. And I really think that that is a poignant message in this moment in time that uh, we, we all have a choice in our perspective and how we choose to view the world absolutely influences the way in which we travel through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, should we dive deep on that? She, she has a great examples on that. If you wanna learn more about Jody, you can go to her website, which is fantastic, has all of her work on there, both written and photography, Jody McDonald Photography, that is J-O-D-Y and M-A-C, Donald McDonald. Uh, and then also on Instagram, uh, where she's putting stuff up all the time. Um, great writing, great, amazing photography from her uh, life and, and her current work. And she is Joni McDonald Photo um, on Instagram. So thanks so much for joining us. Once again, if you like what Corey and I are doing here, please drop us a review or go subscribe on iTunes or any other place that podcasts are found and of course you can go to roamemedia.com and uh see us although today we ran into some technical difficulties you can see Corey and i but not our guest for a portion that's okay uh if you're listening uh you wouldn't even know the difference so thanks for joining us rome from home mm -hmm.